Let's open the precious Word of God to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Our King James Bibles, we believe, preserved by the overriding providence of God so that we can have His words in our language this day. We believe the King James Bible is God's Word less for its manuscript superiority to other versions, but mainly because God promised to preserve His words, so we believe those promises by faith. God promised that His words would bear certain fruit, and the King James Bible has 400 years of it, that it would be fools that God would blind who thought themselves wise in this world, and it's textual critics that hate the King James the most, So that is another confirming witness to us. And the facts of this book back up the King James Bible by its internal integrity. Though we cannot explain every single verse and every single clause of every verse, and though there may be apparent contradictions, we know God hasn't lied because the ones we have figured out that the world can't figure out are precious indeed because they reveal additional truth to us. We're thankful for every word of God. And so we embark on an English study of Romans. And we're not going to Greekify at a higher level of criticism or a lower level of criticism. We're going to trust our English Bibles, which most commentators don't do. They're arguing at a higher or lower level of criticism, attacking the words of God and trying to explain them away. But we want to take our English words so that you can understand them and you can read this epistle and that we can gather everything from it that the Lord intends for us. My brethren, let me read to you the first seven verses of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's salutation. This is the opening line. When we're young and foolish, we open this way. How are you? I am fine. When we're mature and inspired like Paul, we open this way. A servant of Jesus Christ. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very different form of writing. The introduction follows this and runs from verses 8 down through verse 15. Then we have a two-verse summary in verses 16 and 17. And then the argument begins in verse 18 to condemn all men, Jews and Gentiles, before God. Brethren, these are important verses 
And these are important words. And we shall proceed at what I hope is the optimal pace. Though some will think it too slow and some will think it too fast. Every word is important. Follow with me for a moment. We cannot pass the first verse of this systematic theology inspired by God and the only one. And this polemic treatise, that means an argumentative one to refute error. We can't get past the first verse without seeing truth in it that condemns entire denominations. For it says that Paul was called to be an apostle. And if we study out what it means to be called to be an apostle, we know that the charismatics are wrong because they have no apostles, though they claim to have them. And so we find a large movement that embodies many churches and much popularity and huge crowds throughout the world to be wrong from the first verse. We find by reading the first verse and considering it just briefly that the Mormons are wrong because the Mormons think they have 12 apostles sitting around a table in Salt Lake City, Utah. But Paul was the last apostle because Paul was the last one to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And unless a man has seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot be an apostle. That was the sign and the mark of an apostle. We can't get past the first verse without blowing out entire denominations and cults by the first verse of Romans chapter 1. Because Paul was the last apostle and he was called to be an apostle by special circumstances because the Lord revealed himself to Paul as one born out of due time. We get to the second verse and it condemns Jewish legalists which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The New Testament gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing but the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. And the Jewish legalists, who are still hung up back there with the Sabbath commandment, miss the fulfillment of it because the New Testament teaches us that it was pointing to Christ. It was a shadow of Christ. The real rest is not the seventh day. The real rest is not Canaan. The real rest is resting in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Because we know He did it all for us. And so the second verse condemns Jewish legalists. The third verse condemns Origen, one of the most highly esteemed church fathers, and the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son of God. Origen came up with the language of eternal generation, that God's Son is His Son in His divine nature and was made His Son by a process, though mysterious, they'll say, of eternal generation in eternity past. It's condemned right here because it tells us who the Son is and how He was the Son. In the third verse, thank you, Lord. Verse 4 condemns expositors that think Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1 when it says, This day have I begotten thee is applying to the conception or the incarnation or the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When in fact, the words from Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1, This day have I begotten thee, are applied to his resurrection. And Acts 13 and verse 33 tells us that plainly, which I dealt with you at length. Ten days ago on a Wednesday evening. 
Verse 5 condemns the identity movement. The identity movement are those people that believe the Anglo-Saxon races are God's chosen people. That the devil had literal sex with Eve, and the result was Cain. And all of Cain's descendants are the Jews, who are children of the devil, and none of them shall escape the damnation of hell. You say, does anybody believe? Absolutely they believe it. Herbert W. Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God. And there are people that come in among us, even recently, that believe that. The identity movement. That the lost ten tribes of Israel went and inhabited England, and then came to America. And so that the Anglo-Saxon descendants out of England are the lost ten tribes of Israel and the real people of God. Amazing. But do you know what it says in the uh, fifth verse? Where we condemn the identity movement? It says, for obedience to the faith among all nations. Praise God. There is the Ethiopian eunuch. And there is Cornelius of the Italian band. And there are Jews, like the Apostle Paul, and others. So that we have apostles like James writing to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Thank you, Lord. We come to verse 8, and it teaches us that the gospel was preached in the whole world before Paul wrote this epistle from Corinth long before he ever got to Rome. There are people that do not believe... Mark 16, the last two verses, where it says, So the apostles, the eleven, went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord blessing them with signs following. This eighth verse tells us that the gospel had been preached in all the, in the whole world. Let's use the Bible words right here. Had been preached in the whole world because if it hadn't been preached in the whole world, as far as the whole world extends in Bible language, then how would they have known about the faith of the Roman saints? It helps us explain the words, the whole world. Because I don't believe that Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse sat around their fire chewing on buffalo jerky, talking about the faith of the Roman saints. It teaches us a lot if we look at every word of these verses. I come to the ninth verse, and it blows out the denominations called Quakers, called Mennonites, and called Jehovah's Witnesses, who will not take an oath. They will not stand in a court of our nation and raise their right hand and put their left hand in a Bible and say, so help me God. Because they refuse to take an oath, but the Apostle Paul in the ninth verse takes an oath. He says, for God is my witness. Now, do you, the Lord has impressed upon me to start out this sermon this way to let you know how important every word is and every clause is. And if it takes us a year to get through the epistle to the Romans then we're going to get through it. We're going to learn the whole Bible from the spectacles of Romans. And it's precious. And I'm wound up on it. And we're not going to get as far as I just got. But we're going to get a little ways. And we want to rejoice in what it does say. This is an inspired systematic theology. This isn't written by Charles Hodge. This isn't written by Douglas Moo, the number one most popular Romans commentary that there is today. This is written by... The Apostle Paul, but authored by the Holy Spirit of God. And let's rejoice in every word that we have here. Thank you, Lord. That was just to whet your appetite and to realize how thorough the book is. Last night, as my wife and I were drifting off to sleep in bed, 
we were talking about, because she was having to listen to me moan and groan, about how to preach the book of Romans. You know, there's one extreme. We could say it was a letter. Jonathan, it was a letter. Sherry, it was a letter. Someone stood up in the church at Rome and read it. I said, settled. That'll make it easy. In the first service tomorrow, I'll read the first eight chapters. And the second service, we'll read chapters 9 through 16. But do you know how much truth is in every one of these clauses? In every one of these phrases? Do you know how much truth is in the clause and phrase from Psalm 2 and verse 7? Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. If we just read over that, you'll think conception. If we just read over it, you'll think the birth of Jesus. But if we go to Acts 13, 33 and get some explanation for it, we understand that those words, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, is God raising Jesus from the dead and putting him at his own right hand on a throne, saying, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee to the head of the universe. Reign, my son. Praise God. That's all that Psalm 2 is about. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? God has set His King upon His holy hill of Zion. Once you, once you have the understanding of Acts 13.33, you go back to Psalm 2 and it's all plain. It's talking about Jesus being put on His throne. Once you have understanding from Acts 13, you go to Hebrews 1 and it's all plain because it says, He was made higher than the angels. Now wait a minute. In Hebrews 2, it says Jesus was made lower than the angels. But in chapter 1, it says Jesus was made higher than the angels. When was Jesus made lower than the angels? When He was born. When was Jesus made higher than the angels? When He was resurrected and ascended into heaven and was given power over all the angelic hosts. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for all the truth. Verse 2 of this First chapter has in parentheses, which he had promised to four by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I explained to you last Lord's Day that those words are there to tell Paul's audience that though they were Jews and though they were Gentile proselytes that had first converted to Judaism, I don't want to call, nope, not to Judaism, they had first converted to Moses' law and the worship of God under the Old Testament and Old Covenant. Though they had that exposure to the Old Testament and adored those scriptures, Paul is pointing out in parentheses very quickly to, to, uh, to comfort them that the gospel that he was bringing and what he would be preaching and what he would be teaching about Jesus Christ was not contrary to the Old Testament, but actually it's fulfillment. See, Paul was suspect by those who loved the Old Testament because he preached Jesus Christ and that was the solid basis for his entire ministry. And so they would question him unless he cut them off at the second verse of the first chapter by explaining to them, now I'm not bringing anything new and novel. What I'm bringing was already promised by God, by his prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. Because it was promised by God, it's divine. Because it was by his prophets, it's what you've been accustomed to believe. And it's according to the scriptures that you've had read every Sabbath day. Important. Because this book is going to take apart the old covenant and establish the new covenant. This book is going to say that justification is not by the works of the law of Moses, but by the free grace of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have that second verse. But before we leave the second verse, let's quickly remember, and we turn to Genesis 3 and Malachi 4, last Lord's Day, to see the first promise 
and the last promise about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that in between are a whole many promises. There are so many promises that when you read the New Testament and the Apostle Paul is speaking of Jesus and the gospel kingdom and the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, how many times does he say, as it is written? Yes, because it's in total agreement with the Old Testament. It supersedes it in some ways. It fulfills it in some ways. It is the fulfillment of the types and the shadows that are found there. The greatest men of God in the Old Testament were the prophets, and they wrote of Christ. They weren't sure of all the details of what they wrote, and they wrote of the gospel era. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 11 tells us they weren't sure what or what manner of time. They weren't sure of exactly what they were describing, and they weren't sure of when it would take place. First Peter 1.11, but here we are on this side of the New Testament, and we know because we're basking in it. We are basking in it, brethren. You did not have to get up this morning and take your prize lamb that your little daughter has played with for the last year and cut its throat and bleed it out. And know that you're going to have to do it again next year for Passover. You're going to have to do it every morning and every evening for the daily and evening sacrifices. Because we have the Lamb of God sacrificed once for us. We are blessed abundantly. We should. That's why it says in Romans 15 over and over, Ye Gentiles, laud Him. Ye Gentiles, rejoice with His people. Ye Gentiles, sing His praise. We are so blessed. There are so many prophecies. I'm not going to... You know how long that would take us? It's a study done many years ago that you can get on tape or in printed outline form called The Prophecies of Jesus. From the Old Testament, it runs from Genesis chapter 3 to Malachi chapter 4, but that would take us a whole year itself. So we'll not go there. But I hope that you remember that the Bible says, Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. God with us. We get the interpretation in Matthew 1.23. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He is big enough and he is strong enough to bear the whole government of David's kingdom. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. Wonderful. Amen. Counselor. Amen. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. What a Savior. Yes, there were prophecies. And these saints knew them. And Paul is saying, the gospel I preach is in full agreement with those things you understand from the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 70, Zechariah prophesied and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. From the very beginning, there have been prophecies made about the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And in some of those places, there were prophecies of the one to prepare his way, John the Baptist. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day and said, Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. Because they wore them on their forehead, wore them on their arm, kissed them, copied them carefully. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John 5, 39. And ye will not come to me, 
that ye might have life. John 5.40 The only ones that will ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ are those given to Him by the Father that the Father draws to come to Him. John 6.44 tells us, No man can come to Jesus Christ except the Father which hath sent me draw him. If you have ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe on Him right now, and if you want to live for Him right now, it's because God drew you to come to Christ. The, the Old Testament Scriptures testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not introducing something new. So he comforted these Jews that were part of his audience and these Gentiles that had been Jewish proselytes as part of his audience with the second verse. And then he comes to the third verse. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David... According to the flesh. Parentheses in English can be taken out of a sentence and ignored to get the line of thought contained in the sentence. What is in parentheses is giving additional matter and is to be appreciated and understood, but is not necessary to the grammar or the sense of the sentence around it. It's not necessary. That's why it is in parentheses. So, here's how the sentence reads through the third verse without verse 2, which is in parentheses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Concerning is taking us back to the gospel of God in verse 1. The gospel of God concerns a very important topic. And what is that topic that the gospel of God conveys? It is the message about God's Son, Jesus of Nazareth, who is both Lord and Christ. And we want to keep it that way in our church. The gospel is of God is the good news concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel has one main message. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined, I determined not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. I don't want to glory in anything except the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, this world is put to death for me. And when I glory in the Lord Jesus Christ... This world thinks I'm a dead nut. And that's just precious. And that's just the way we like it. But let's make sure that we glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing else worth glorying in. The world, the flesh, and the devil tries to get us to glory in so many other things. But there's one thing we ought to glory in. And it's Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. We want to glory in Him. We want to make Him preeminent. In our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in our church. Lord, help us to this end. Paul's great theme is the glorious person of Jesus Christ and the salvation he won for Paul. On the road to Damascus, he said, Lord, who art thou? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And he did it for the rest of his life. We need to have that same attitude today. 
I do not want us to just fill ourselves up with facts about the book of Romans, even if we could explain every clause and phrase in this entire epistle, unless we have a relationship with the one the epistle is about. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is to convey information about the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth and to provoke and encourage us to have a relationship with Him. We want more than a religion. And I don't want to play too much in these words. We want a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The gospel concerns His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Brethren, we better be careful about what we build on that foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, I have laid a foundation, and every man that lays on top of my foundation had better be careful what he lays. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Do you love verses like that in the Bible? Amen. Let's stir ourselves up to love the Lord Jesus Christ the way we should. Look at Paul. Look at the epistle. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Yes, the emphasis in there is that Paul was a servant, but it was of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it added to the weight and power uh, and acceptability of his epistle by pointing out that he was an ambassador of the high king of heaven, a servant of Jesus Christ. Why did he put those words there? We covered it last Lord's Day. He put those words there to add to the acceptability of his epistle, that those people, that his audience in Rome would appreciate the fact that he was an ambassador of God's own Son, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul laid the foundation of Christ Jesus. We always want to praise and be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is our brother. He is our priest. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. He is the bishop of our souls. He is the great shepherd. He is the cornerstone. He is the head of our church. He is the only mediator between God and men. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the faithful and the true witness. He is the Word of God. He is all in all. He's the fairest of 10,000. And if you don't love Him, we're in serious trouble for your soul. Love Him, brethren. Other foundation can no man lay. And today you turn the television on and you've got speakers that are laying other foundations. The foundation is not a social gospel. The foundation is not prosperity. The foundation is not universal literacy. I don't care if the world can read or not. Most of the world's always been unable to read. Send them preachers. It's hearing that faith is built. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You don't need to read, although it helps. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I don't want any emails. You know what I meant. I'm thankful that you can read. I'm thankful you can go and search the Scriptures and find an Isaiah 7.14 and an Isaiah 9.6 and a Psalm 2.7 and other verses that I've already mentioned from the Old Testament and rejoice in them. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let us make sure that the gospel that comes out of this pulpit, the gospel that is talked about in our homes, the gospel that we teach our children is about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, 
Every man's work shall be made manifest. This is a warning to ministers because there were too many of them at Corinth. Paul said, I am the wise master builder. After me came Apollos. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the increase. But let every man take heed how he buildeth upon the foundation that I put at Corinth. The foundation I put at Corinth was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 2-2. This is chapter 3. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. It's going to be clearly revealed whether it's a good addition to that foundation or not. Because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Every minister's work. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. His ministerial efforts are going to go up in smoke. He's going to get saved and make it to heaven, but his ministerial labors are going to go up in smoke. Wood, hay, and stubble, do they burn pretty easily? Very easily. Gold, silver, and precious stones, do they burn? Only to be refined. Let every man take heed how he builds in the foundation of Christ Jesus. The reason that we're on this point right now is because of that third verse. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, Lord, let us always keep this first. No wonder, no wonder that Paul would write in Hebrews chapter 2, Let us therefore fear. That's not exactly the terminology. In, In Hebrews chapter 2, it's therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And it goes on to describe that the word was first spoken by Jesus, and then it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God working with them and giving them many confirming signs and wonders. We want to keep the foundation and what the true identity of the gospel is. The gospel is not what you can hear from Joel Osteen tonight. Without knowing what Joel Osteen is going to preach on television tonight, I can tell you that it's not this. He would shrink his audience greatly if he were to preach this. Instead, he'll be preaching about how God wants to take Away your debts. He'll be preaching how God wants to end your divorce. He'll be preaching about how God wants to bring your children back from prison. He'll be teaching you about how God wants you to have a fancy car or two of them in your driveway. And he'll do it with a great big from ear to ear smile. He's the sweetest man I've ever known. But he will not preach Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1 gets down and dirty before you get to the 32nd verse. Romans chapter 1 reveals the wrath of God from heaven upon all disobedience and unrighteousness of men. And it starts out in verse 3, but it's about His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let Him preach the Jesus of the Bible instead of prosperity, instead of literacy, instead of financial independence, instead of getting up in the morning and looking in a mirror and having a grin on your face? How about getting down on your knees and having grief in your soul about sin because you want to please the Savior who died for sinners and paid for sin? I hate to mention 
other men by name, but I want to give you a specific picture in your mind while I'm preaching for that particular point. There's many more like him. The Bible warns us about it. The Bible describes it very clearly. The time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they'll be turned after their own lusts instead of the truth. We want the Lord Jesus Christ coming from our pulpit and into our ears. We want the Lord Jesus Christ to be the preeminent theme of all that we learn from His Word. Because as I already quoted, search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. John 5.39 It's called the Gospel of God in verse 1 of Romans. The Gospel of God and the Gospel of Christ which is in verse 16, is the same gospel. It's the gospel of God because He's the author of it. It's the gospel of Christ because He's the object of it. It's given by God. It's the good information about His Son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the object of that gospel. We don't want to be deceived in any way about the identity of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 2 with me, please, brethren. Colossians chapter 2. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we want to identify the Gospel, and if we were taking a test right now, and the question was, students, what is the Gospel about? It's about God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what it's about. And we want to make it and keep it that way in our hearts and here in this church. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. The doctrine that you've been taught about Christ and the things that you have learned about Christ continue in them. As ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. And established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Is that your life? Is that a description right now of your life? As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, you're walking in Him, you're rooted in Him, you're built up in Him, you are established in the faith, just as you've been taught, and you're abounding in that knowledge of Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Is that describing you? Is that describing me? It ought to be. Verse 8, beware. Here's why this is all important in the third verse of the first chapter. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. What do you have in mind exactly, Paul, about Christ? Verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Lord Jesus Christ is a human body with the fullness of the Godhead in it. Colossians 2.9 There are men that by philosophy and vain deceit and the traditions of the church will take us away and try to spoil us from our pure understanding of Jesus Christ. But we want to stay rooted and built up and established in Him and abounding therein with thanksgiving. And I thank God to understand His Son, Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I hope that He's your Lord as well. Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. The Gospel is concerning 
His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's Son we're dealing with. God has a Son, and He's jealous about His Son, and He's protective of His Son, and He will judge the adversaries of His Son like He did in 70 A.D. And He wants us to love His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The issue that we have with many is not nitpicking about words. It's not a game that we play about words. It's the difference between an unbegotten God joined to human flesh that makes up Jesus or a begotten God that makes up Jesus. They will say that their begotten God, which is from their Bible, the New American Standard Version, and also the New World Translation in John 1.18, says a begotten God. That's their God. That's their Jesus. Our Jesus is unbegotten God. Our Jesus is a begotten Son, and there's all the difference in the world. And I, I need you to understand that difference, and Paul wants you to understand that difference. And I thank God for men who have gone before me, that when they would start a commentary or preaching on the epistle of Romans, when they got to the third verse, would stop and write an appendix to explain the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because they know that in those words right there, we better pay careful attention to what they say. Let's quickly look at them. There are four words we want to understand. Son, Jesus, Christ, and Lord. Are you able to explain all four to yourself? Are you able to explain all four to your children? Son. Let's get to it later. Let's start with Jesus. Jesus is an anglicized, an English form of the Greek form of a Hebrew name, Jehoshua. Jehovah is the Savior. Mary never called her baby boy Jesus. Mary wasn't English. The Hebrew name of her little boy was Jehoshua, or Joshua, or Jeshua for short. And it means Jehovah is salvation. The angel told, Moses, the angel told Joseph to name Mary's first child, her firstborn son, Jesus, in Matthew one twenty one, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's God Jehovah being a Savior in the name of Jesus, which is Joshua. That is why in Acts chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 4, Moses' successor from the Old Testament, the man we know as Joshua, is called Jesus in the New Testament, and if you're not reading carefully, you'll get confused. But in Acts 7 and Hebrews 4, Joshua is called Jesus because when Joshua comes into Greek and then into English, it turns into Jesus. Just like Isaiah, when it comes from Hebrew into Greek into English, turns into Isaiah. And when Elijah comes in, it turns into Elias. And when Elisha comes in, it turns into Eliseus. And when Jeremiah comes in, it's Jeremiah. You don't have a problem with any of that, I hope. I'm thankful that God made it a little complicated so people can't play with the Word of God. It's not a comic book, but it's plain enough. It's plain enough if we'll read it and submit to its words. His first name is his personal name, Jesus. He is called Jesus of Nazareth to identify him and distinguish him from Jesus of Jerusalem, from Jesus of Bethsaida, and from Jesus of any other village or hamlet in Israel. Joshua was a popular name. Why wouldn't you want to name your child 
Jehovah is the Savior. That's a great name. Joshua was a great figure in the Bible history. Joshua has a whole book written after him. Joshua was Moses' successor. Joshua took the land of Canaan and destroyed seven nations. Jesus of Nazareth. That does not mean Jesus was a Nazarite. How do we know Jesus was not a Nazarite? Because he drank wine. When the Bible says Jesus the Nazarene, what is it referring to? It's referring to Jesus came from the city of Nazareth. You would not believe how many people get that confused. The Apostle Paul was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Not the denomination that started in this country a hundred years ago, but of Jesus of Nazareth. That's a Nazarene in the Bible. Someone from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is his personal name and his personal identification of a man, male child, raised in Nazareth, his hometown, Jesus of Nazareth. That's right here in these words. The gospel is about Jesus of Nazareth as God's Son and Christ and Lord. The word Christ. We don't need to Greekify. All we need to do is read an English Bible. Do you, do you want to see what I mean? Look at John chapter 1 and verse 41, and let's save ourselves some Greekification. John chapter 1. It sounds like fossilication. or turning ourselves into fossils. Why do we want to go back to a dead language? The version of Greek that was used in the formation of Bibles. And why do we want to enter into a controversy over what Greek version of the New Testament we're going to use. There is no less difficulty in Greek than there is in English. As soon as you leave English and go back into Greek, which version in Greek are you going to use as God's Word? You have the same dilemma that we have with the English. But our dilemma is easily solved by faith, by fruit, by fools, and by facts. We know the King James Bible is God's Word. And you, when you meet one of these Greek lovers that seek after wisdom, that the Bible condemns, when you meet one of them, ask them why they believe in the 66-book canon of the Bible. And they'll say, we just have to by faith. They say, thank you very much. Argument settled. That's why we accept the King James Bible. You don't need to have no manuscript evidence. There are men that have gone before that have done all the manuscript evidence work, but it's less valuable. Listen. Listen, brethren, it's this simple. Do you need scientific evidence that God created the heavens and the earth in six days? If you do, you've got a serious problem. Because I'll find a scientist that will take you and tie your brain in knots. He'll have you worshiping Baal in an hour. Do you know why we believe that God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is in six days of 24 hours each? Because the Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And God created everything and God ended the works of his creation and God rested because it's in the Bible. And through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. He made everything out of nothing and I believe it and I understand it. That's what we believe about creation. We believe the same thing about the Bible. And so here we are, an English version of Romans. And we're going to trust our English Bible to bail us out when Paul said concerning his son, Jesus Christ. What is Christ? John 1.41 He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, 
the Christ. Instead of me drawing on an overhead projector some little squiggly figures from the Greek language and telling you about Christos, we can just look right here in John 1.41 or go to chapter 4, and I think it's verse 25, where we have the very same explanation. Yes, there it is, which is called Christ, and we know what the word Christ means. The word Christ is a title of Jesus of Nazareth that he was the Messiah. It wasn't his personal name. It was a title that God had given in the Old Testament, and it's only given in the Old Testament in one passage. And I want you to turn there. It's Daniel chapter 9. Thank the Lord for the book of Daniel. It's one of the 66 books in our inspired library. Daniel chapter 9 has the only use of the word Messiah in in the Hebrew Old Testament Scriptures. But guess what? In John chapter 1 and in John chapter 4, there were two people at least that were looking for that Messiah. And the only way they had that word, right here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks. How would you have liked to have lived in the time of Simeon and Anna? Do you know what it says? It says that many were in Jerusalem looking for redemption. Do you know why? Because they had a timeline, they had a timeline of Daniel's prophecy. That's not very nice to a book. Don't treat books that way, children. They had a timeline of Daniel's prophecy, and they knew that it was about to be fulfilled. Precious. So John the Baptist bursts on the scene, and what are his opening lines? The time is fulfilled. Here's the time. Daniel 9, 24. I wish you loved Daniel, brethren. It is a faith-building book. Amen. Daniel 9.24 Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Those were Nehemiah's troublesome times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Do you know why he was cut off? He was cut off for your sins. He was cut off in the prime of his life to make reconciliation for our iniquities. These are the two prophecies of the Messiah that are mentioned in the New Testament in John 1 and John 4, where we have the word Christ explained to us, that Jesus of Nazareth is Christ, meaning He's this Messiah. Now, if it's 70 weeks until Messiah, would you tell me where He was at this point in time? Did He exist yet? As the Messiah? No, he did not exist yet. And Romans 1.3 tells us that. That he had to be made of flesh. It's a wonderful text. It establishes our doctrine. It refutes their doctrine. We've taken up two words. Jesus is his personal name. Jesus of Nazareth limits him to the one that we're dealing with. He is, has a title named Christ. Which is, he is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. All of that from Daniel 9. And John 1 and John 4 telling us that the word Christ means the Messiah. 
Why does it say Messiah with an S, not an H? Because remember, when you come in from Hebrew to Greek to English, that's what happens to H's. Like Eli, let's not go through that again. There it is. Back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, thank you, Lord, for every word. The gospel of God, the good news of God, the glad tidings that God has sent to us concerns or is about one thing, and it's a foundation that Paul laid, and we do not want to alter the foundation, and we want to be very careful what we lay on it, and we do not, we want to beware lest any man trouble us through philosophy or vain deceit or the traditions of men so that we keep the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ intact and pure the way the Bible presents it to us. For in Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and there was no body until Mary had a baby. This is our doctrine. They can accuse us of denying the full deity of Jesus Christ. We'll accuse them of denying it because the deity of their Christ is a begotten God. The deity of our Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is unbegotten God. He is Jehovah. He is the mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. He is the everlasting Father. Isaiah 9, 6. Now isn't that precious that God would show such truth that is so complicated to them, so complex and so mysterious, that we can simply understand it by believing the words of our English Bible. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the anointed Messiah of God to come and make reconciliation for the sins of God's people. Daniel chapter 9, and he came. The commandment to go forth and to rebuild Jerusalem was issued by Cyrus. And you heard about him a few weeks ago by Brother Newell. And 490 weeks passed. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and gone. And he's in heaven. Because now he's been made a third word. Lord. Jesus is Lord. What does Lord mean? He is Prince. Daniel 9. He is King. He is Ruler. He is Sovereign. He is Governor. He is the Lord. He is the one now sitting on a throne and the earth is His footstool. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ and He's Lord. Do you remember Peter's concluding words in his sermon in Acts chapter 2? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Do you know what the response was by 3,000? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, of Naz- Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's what we ought to do, is we ought to repent of our sins and believe on such a glorious Savior. He is the Son of God. Look at the verse before we break. Romans 1.3 The gospel of God concerns His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is God's Son. So we're coming to the fourth term used to describe our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Lord and He is God's Son. When and how did He become God's Son? By the second half of Romans 1-3. 
which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is a dual-natured being. He has a human nature, body, soul, and spirit, and He has a divine nature, the Word of God. He has both natures. He is the God-man. The Bible describes Him as God. The Bible describes Him as the man Christ Jesus between God and man. He is both. He had to have flesh in order to be the Son of God if we're to trust Romans 1-3, which was made. He didn't always exist as the Messiah. He didn't always exist as Jesus. He didn't always exist as the Christ because He had to be made. Not in His divine nature. His divine nature is unbegotten Jehovah. If anybody should be Jehovah's Witnesses, we should be. That sounds bad on a tape. If anybody should be witnesses that Jesus is Jehovah, is what I mean, we should be. Because we believe that Jesus is Jehovah in a human body. Because the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him bodily. Not a begotten part of the Godhead, the unbegotten God. Because our God isn't begotten in any sense of the word. They can have John 1.18 in the New American Standard Bible. They just need to understand that their New American Standard Bible lines up and agrees with the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses in John 1.18. Where it says, a begotten God. We do not believe in a begotten God. We believe in a begotten Son. Our God is not begotten. And our God came down into the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And that two-natured being is our Redeemer. And sometimes the Bible is speaking of things about His human nature. Sometimes the Bible is speaking things about His divine nature. Sometimes the Bible is speaking about the combined of the two natures. And that's what it's doing when it says the Son of God. And without that flesh body, He was not a son because He hadn't been made that son yet of the flesh of David's lineage through Mary, His mother. More to come. Lord, Lord God, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds and cause us to know and to understand and to love your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank Thee for Him. We thank Thee for what He has done for us. We thank Thee that Your faithful Apostle laid a foundation that no other man can lay, which is laid correctly and truly and properly, and that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank Thee for Thy Son. We thank Thee for sending Thy Son. We thank Thee that Thy Son laid down His life and took it up again to save us from our sins. And in His life and death and perpetual life at Your right hand, we trust and rest our lives in this world and our hope of eternal life in the world to come. By the power of the Holy Spirit, bear witness of your Son to our spirits, that we indeed might love Him and serve Him all the days of our lives, and glorify Thee, our Father in heaven, for our delight in Your only begotten Son. These things we ask in Jesus' glorious name, asking You to bless the food that we are about to partake of during our break, that our fellowship will be sweet and that we will provoke one another to love and to good works 
for Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.